players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Force of Will, Shrinosphere, Dark Depths, and many others, battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thurabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 97 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, The Draw of Blue. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. ThrabenU, joined by... I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Before we get rolling here, shout out to our new subscribers who just enjoyed the pre-show. We've got Sean and Brian and Nicholas and Valakut. Uh, Valakut, I'm a big fan of uh, the way that you deal three to everything. I think you're over the line with uh, Dried Up the Elysian Grove, so maybe chill out a little bit. But we're happy to have you all the same. All right. And I'd also like a, to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Eminence Gaming. And we're going to do our quick shout out here. Are you interested in running an event or want your LGS to do so? Worried about the logistics of it? Fear not. Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software has you covered. You can create and manage four-player or 1v1 tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system ensures you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.event for details. And without further ado, let's talk about how to draw some cards. Now, this is a concept that I'm personally not very familiar with, but um, we have some other powerful blue mages here who are going to kind of walk us through card draw in Legacy. Setting kind of the context here, EI got banned, and that was just the the de facto best source of card advantage in the format. It was so strong, so flexible, you got to loop it with Mystic Sanctuary, then maybe return that back to hand with days, do it again and again and again, and now you actually have to think about how you're going to draw cards. What's EI? For those of you who don't know the answer to that, hopefully you never have to know that it's expressive iteration. If you play modern, obviously it's still a format staple there. Over expressive iteration's existence in Legacy, we went from this card's pretty good in Delver to this card's busted in Delver to maybe we'll play two of these in our Jeskai or Grixis control decks to, oh, this is just the best thing to do. We're going to put four in every deck. We're going to add red to the Bant mana base, and now Bant control is just automatically four color because we're playing four EIs as well. It just really warped how we perceive card advantage around it, and we're going to talk about what its removal has done to the metagame and what people are doing to draw cards now that you can't do that anymore, a thing that we all grew so accustomed to. I'm going to take a prediction here. Is Brian now playing the best card in Legacy, Galvanic Relay? Stick around to find out. We'll talk about that later. Outlook looks bad, though. Ah, damn. So I want to do a quick sort of terminology thing. When we say something like card draw in this episode, we're really going to mean card advantage. 
So there are cantrips in Legacy that provide you with card selection, right? Your brainstorms, your ponders, your preordains, um, you know, even your bobbles. These are just replacing themselves though. We specifically want to be talking about how do I get ahead on cards today? So this isn't a, going to be a lesson on cantrips or anything like that. We're talking about your two for ones. How do you get that value? And let's start by talking about what everyone thought was going to happen. I mean, we did an episode, uh, we were in there with everyone else saying, what are people going to default to now that expressive iteration is gone? And predict was near the top of that list. It was on the top of everybody's list. Uh, I know a bunch of people in my community were complaining that the foil spiked by like 60 bucks when the EI ban was announced. Suddenly, everyone's trying to shove predict in their deck. And that's not really how the format has borne out. I saw some predicts in the early days, and the trick with predict is if you're not setting it up, it's just a cantrip. It's a two mana, put this card in the graveyard, put a new one in your hand. Even if you do set it up, it still sees fewer cards than a brainstorm or a ponder. And I don't know that legacy is in a predict kind of space anymore, unless you're doing something really specific with it, like setting up a doomsday pile. Yeah, for the first time yesterday in basically eons, I saw a hard blue-white control list with both like predicts and portents with entreat the angels and all that stuff. Um, but generally speaking, I have seen very little predict outside of that first like week or two window past uh, EI's banning. I, I just don't think that card's hanging. I believe we'll see more of those decks once Triumph of St. Catherine comes to Magic Online, because I think that is a card that is worth building around for the first time in a while with the Miracle Mechanic. Obviously, Terminus is a powerful card. One mana Wrath of God, like, yeah, that's playable. But it hasn't had a whole lot of other reasons to build around the Miracle Mechanic in quite some time. And I think Triumph is going to make a return of cards like Portent relevant. But... I can't help but think of predict and then accumulated knowledge in the same space and all the innovation that happened in 2018 where people realized that predict requires you to use your cantrips differently in a way that you regularly wouldn't. Like you don't want to shuffle after a brainstorm. You'd stack your ponders in a weird way and it just creates a weird tension on the game where AK, yeah, the first one's pretty bad, but you never have to use your cantrips in a worse fashion for the rest of the match. I always think about that when it comes to predict now even if i'm not arguing for accumulated knowledge i just think of how it forces you to play a little bit differently if it's not attached to a dragon's rage channeler yeah we'll go down that rabbit hole since you opened it i love big blue 10 12 15 turn games i like drawing three or four cards with one spell accumulated knowledge was on my radar of maybe we can bring this back i put that in a similar bucket with standstill not that they are the same card or go in the same deck, but they are the type of old school card advantage engine that I'm excited when they're good. I regret to inform you, after having tried both, neither are very good. So those, I think, predict, standstill, and accumulated knowledge were the old school cards that people were looking to that we've seen in the formats past that did not hold up to step into EI space. But there were some new cards too that we talked about. Phil, do you want to remind us of of these two yeah so some other things that we were looking at were chart a course and reckless impulse chart chart a course was one that i was never super hyped on but i'm gonna admit like the first time i saw someone reckless impulse about five or six times in a game i thought that card was going to be the truth 
Like that card looked very good to me from the other side of the battlefield. And then it just kind of fell off the cliff and I didn't see it much after bullied me a couple times in initial leagues. I think that the, these two cards that we're talking about here, Charter Course and Reckless Impulse, they're cards that are more likely to see play in a tempo shell rather than a control shell. And it's important to evaluate these card advantage pieces within their context. So what people discovered with these two draw spells is that instead of trying to gain card advantage, those decks were better at just killing you. Instead of trying to play a longer game with worse cards, they're just getting you dead. But I don't think a deck like Shark still has that same luxury, so they likely need to look somewhere else. But Brian would be the expert here. I don't know who to credit on this one, but like in terms of killing people, I've seen Sprite Dragon in play from like a blue-red Delver style deck again just as something that is going to smack the opponent and get them dead. And I hadn't seen a Sprite Dragon in eons. I, I, I think it got like a challenge top eight this weekend. Is that correct? I, I saw something floating around Twitter and I don't remember what. I was just scrolling through Is It Delverless uh, just to refresh myself what they're actually up to these days. And I did see Sprite Dragon in a list. Yep. Yeah, I've seen Sprite Dragon in play. I've also seen Third Path Iconoclast in the Delver Shell. Those two occupy kind of a similar space, whether you want to go wide or go tall. But looking at Delver decks now, there are a pretty normal number of lists with two Predict in them. And this is a deck with four Dragon's Rage Channeler, four Mistress Bobble, and all of the Cantrips to set up Predict. They're still trying to do the EI thing a little bit. But a lot of these decks are just like two Preordain or Preordain Unholy Heat or an extra Chain Lightning. Off you go. Everything goes face, and we're not trying to get any card advantage. We're just trying to eliminate the opponent, and that is a way to go. We're not going to talk about Delver for very much longer. We were just talking about how these were the things that were being discussed as the heir apparent to Expressive Iteration's throne, and a card I've never seen on the stack at all was Moment of Truth, which we kind of riffed on on this pod a little bit. Uh, I got a lot of comments during preview season for, what was it, uh, All Will Be One? Is that what set that card's in? Um... I don't even know what set it's in because I've never seen it cast. Uh, Brian is currently holding up his Japanese foil playset that came in the mail today. You freaking bought. You will never cast that card. I bought four of them for one American dollar. All right, then it was worth it. That was the card. Uh, this is a look at your top three cards. Put one in your hand, one on the bottom, one in the graveyard. Kind of a worse strategic planning that people thought was going to see play, and it has not, as we predicted. We don't need to spend much time on that. These are cards that we heard being called out, but... You know what is getting played? My boy, Uro. Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath. You just can't keep a good giant down. He will keep emerging from the graveyard. That's kind of his thing. And I like that Uro has kind of splintered into two different spaces right now, where Uro is plan A in like four color control decks, where you're just trying to get Neuro going and then snowball it eventually. And then it's also kind of in the background of decks like Bant Undoing, which I've seen a lot of, where you actually your actual plan is Hallbreach or Narset plus Days Undoing, but you make your opponent respect the Uro throughout, because Uro is just a great source of card advantage along the way and a threat that has to be respected. So Uro's showing up, depending on how hard you want to split the hairs, but we're a legacy talk we're a legacy podcast talking about blue card draw, so I'm gonna split the hair. The Uro as a plan decks and the Uro as a thing my deck does decks are pretty different structurally but 
Uro is there drawing cards all the same. And then there's also things like that, like Rhino, Cascade, Minsk and Boo, Uro, Pile, whatever you effectively want to call that. And Uro isn't a deck because I will cast spells and I can cast that eventually and it will just do obnoxious Uro things. Yep, and he's in all the Zenith decks as a, a Zenith target that immediately cantrips to replace the Zenith, and then it's in the graveyard next turn to be an Uro. Rock solid contender, Uro was a card that was being discussed by the community as does this need to be banned at one point? Remember that a few years ago? I was stumping to keep it at the time, and I think Uro has settled in and proven himself to be a perfectly reasonable thing in Legacy. Obviously an engine, a pillar of the format in a lot of ways, but not over any line. Uh, this card is right where it should be for the format. I, I love that card. I think it is a very well-designed magic cards within the confines of Legacy. It was obnoxious alongside Oko. Uro was not the problem card there. For sure. And to be fair, Uro did get banned in all formats down to Legacy. Standard, Pioneer, and Modern. Uro's not allowed. We found our sweet spot. We're the correct niche for this one. Uro also has come side by side with the resurgence of Ice Fang Coatl, who was not a playable card for a very long time because one of the things that expressive iteration did indirectly to the format was make the control decks play four colors because you couldn't keep up with ei decks or like is it core decks with just blue green and white you needed to do something else whether it was black for like weatherbloom command and some planeswalkers and a zenith package or it was red for your own eis and minskin boo three color decks could not keep up with expressive iteration and you can't play enough basics to turn on Ice Fang Quaddle in a four-color deck. And that's why we didn't see Ice Fang Quaddle for a long time. But it's back. Basic lands are back. Uro likes basic lands. Uro likes Ice Fang Quaddle. And Quaddle is a perfectly reasonable way to draw a card and impact the board and legacy. I have a hot take for you, Brian. I believe that Ice Fang Quaddal was the death of old school control. And what I mean by that is the classic miracles build with like predict and portent and all that stuff. Once your source to plowshares came attached with a cantrip, it kind of changed the way that these decks were built. And I remember at first it went from being just Azorius miracles to Bant miracles. And then it became hot Bant. And then it became a little bit more mid-rangey with Uro and Oko. And we've seen the evolution since then with like Ren and etc. A bunch of cards that have been banned. But Ice Fang was sort of the start of the change of how the mod control deck was built because you no longer want cards that are just like two mana divinations you'd rather have sorts of plowshares that can't trips and things like that like you're less incentivized to play true card advantage engines yeah ice fang quaddle did change the texture of miracles and becoming bant miracles was cool and ice fang quaddle came in a clump of really exciting creatures with flash that are also green or like you to be green as well hull breacher came out endurance came out uh, Shark Typhoon came out in that same era. Uh, and by era, I mean like the time we were all in our house for COVID. Just the things you could do at instant speed that put a body into play and also draw you a card or get you at least a card's worth of value. That is a robust number of options these days. A lot of people would say, hey, Baffle Spirits existed this entire time. It's the same card. I don't think that's actually true. Being an instant is just like a huge difference maker in your format that makes your opponent respect counterspell or things like that. The color is also decisively different. Like the black often pushes you to more sorcery speed stuff, your thought seizes, your toxic deluges, that sort of stuff um, in a way that some of the green stuff doesn't know 
necessarily do. Yeah, I do believe that in the Legacy Vacuum, Balefulstrix is a better card than Ice Fang Coatl. It's just in the context of my control opponent has four open mana, including three snow basics, and the things you have to respect. Waddle affects that world a lot more than Balefulstrix does, because Strix is just heads up, now I gotta beat a Balefulstrix. Uh, but Strix does lead itself towards decks with Thoughtseize and him to Tarak in them more than decks with Counterspell in them. And uh, they're just kind of different things. Interesting thing I noticed at one point, not directly related to this conversation, but I keep all my cards in Legacy Playable Binder sorted by color. And just flipping through my multicolor binder, I found that most of my gold cards that I play in Legacy are black. This is black and something else. Just black seems to be the color that you add to whatever that cool sideboard card is or whatever that cool thing is if you're in the colors and builds a play legacy playable card. So Baleful Strix among a high class of powerful magic cards there. All right, let's 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 talk about some other sources of card advantage. I have seen Planeswalkers coming back in a big way. I have seen so much more Narset Teferi and Jace recently than... What's that last one? I'm unfamiliar. Is that pronounced Hase? I've, I've never seen this one before. Good old Jace the Mind Sculptor is back. And his, and I literally do not believe that I am saying this, is maybe good? I don't believe you, but carry on. I am not a Pyroblast gamer a lot of the time. Like, I have played some fair leagues with non-blue decks, and I have been on the wrong side of Jace the Mind Sculptor recently, and it, it has sucked. It has absolutely obliterated me. As I was trying to do fair things with like Knight of the Reliquaries, Fiend Artisans, that sort of stuff. And I didn't really expect people would be playing Jace basically ever again because of how just common Red Elemental Blasts and Pyroblasts were. But like people are testing it again. It's around. Yeah, I mean, the thing about speed limits is you gotta send troopers out to enforce them, right? Jace is bad in the metagame. It does die to Pyroblast. It does get bolted. It gets unholy heated, even if you plus it. Uh, Force of Negation is frequently on decks on top of Force of Will. Even non-red blue decks are playing Mystical Dispute to get edges in the blue mirrors. Forget about Jace. But if you're the person who's just like, I'm gonna tap three mana for a Knight of the Reliquary in Legacy... You deserve to get jaced. You did that to yourself. That league did not go well. I believe it. I played against blue-white control decks twice, and I got to uh, teach my my younger audience about how bad Maverick is against board wipes, and it was painful. Yeah, if you are, if you do find yourself suddenly in 2012. And you're just ramming Maverick into dedicated Terminus strategies with Jace the Mind Sculptor, then I can see where that would come up. I think I've seen Jace in play once in recent memory, memory worth discussing. I don't even remember if it was pre or post ban, but I, I only have one memory of Jace being in play. And Jace will still win a game where it goes unchecked, but it also gets checked a lot easier these days. So I'm not a believer in Jace. I'm not reaching for that one in my deck building now. Narset, my girl, the parter of Veils, she's back in basically three EI levels of play. She's a card that control decks were just started with two. You frequently ended up with three or four. Not even talking about dedicated days undoing strategies where you have a combo with it, but just straight up like Narset is one of the best ways we can spend three mana. Just put four of them in your deck, make your opponent figure it out, was how decks were being built back in the day. And by back in the day, I mean like two years ago. Uh, but expressive iteration doesn't draw cards. So Narset being a three mana 
part of an impulse that if it's around, you get to impulse again on the following turn without the static being a hugely relevant piece of the game was much worse. And we saw her basically plummet off the the face of playability in the tail end of the EI era because she just didn't stop the thing that needed to be stopped. But she's back. I also think there's a secondary reason why Narset's back. And this card gets its own section later. But Narset alongside Fairy Mastermind is pretty interesting as well. Yeah, we will talk about that when we get there, but we've had Fairy Mastermind for a week now, and we've had EI banned for a couple months now, and the Narset data was large and in charge even before Mastermind. That is an exciting additional fold to playing Narset that we will talk about. Uh, Teferi, I think we're going back through our Teferi arc that we had when War of the Spark first came out, which is, this card's cracked, put it in all the decks. And then quickly cutting them as we realize that the effect Teferi has on a game, not every deck cares about that much. And like you don't want repulse a lot of the time. Like three mana bounce a thing, draw a card is not a great rate in Legacy. And unless your deck specifically cares about shutting down instants, and every deck does better when your opponent cast, can't cast instants, don't get me wrong, but specifically cares like in terms of Cephalid Breakfast or Doomsday or a Days Undoing strategy. I don't think Teferi is just a card I'm going to put one or two copies of in like Hot Band where your card quality is just through the roof. There's some other non-blue options for card advantage as well. This one's paper only at the moment. Some Someday it may come to Magic Online, and that's Comet Stellar Pup, which is a four mana Boros Planeswalker that has a very large amount of randomness associated with its abilities, but strong abilities. More relevant to most of our listeners, there's the obvious Minsk and Boo. Do you all view this as like card advantage? Like, do you think I'm going to draw cards with this? Or do you think plus you, plus you fling, you're dead? The moment that I cast Minsk and Boo is basically the last moment of tension in a lot of matchups where Minsk ar- does Minsk resolve? If yes, does it get bolted in response to the hamster trigger? And then if no, Like if Minsk is in and it doesn't get bolted before I can activate it, I feel like I've won that game because if your opponent, there are clean answers like Caracas that just mitigate Minsk and Boo for as long as it's in play, but Minsk and Boo functions as Rashadenport for that whole time. Like that's a land that your opponent's not using to do other stuff because it's locked down dealing with the hamster. That's some sort of advantage. If they actually start casting like Unholy Heat or Swords of Plowshares or Prismatic Ending on a hamster... That is real card advantage. And then if you ever get to a spot where you're whipping a hamster, that is genuine card draw. And that comes up a lot in, I'm going to talk quite a bit in this episode about Anzi's uh, four color Yorion build of Hot Bant, where he plays four Minsk and Boo in that deck. And it's a pretty normal play pattern to like play, buff your hamster, and then buff your hamster, and then fling with a second main, second Minsk and Boo, like all in the same turn cycle. That is a pretty normal play pattern to move into the, unbeatable endgame. All right. So I think Staff of the Storyteller should probably be the thing that we cover next. I am not the biggest believer in this card. I've had probably super warped experiences, though, with a lot of the decks that I've been playing. My deck's plans, generally speaking, are kill you fast. Like, I love playing these, like, turbo initiative decks sorts of things. And Staff of the Storyteller has just, like, seemed so 
bad to me because the game is just over before that card matters, but I'm seeing it appear in more and more lists, and I've seen them do gross things in combination, so let's let's delve into this one. Yeah, Staff of the Storyteller, we were pretty hyped about this in a previous episode. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before. It can just be generic card advantage in decks with white like it does kind of a bad baleful strix like you lose death touch off your creature but this is sort of a three mana one one draw card on its face and then if you have ways to charge the staff like the second staff then you feel like you're getting a good deal but the first staff you're right does feel pretty anemic so in the decks that aren't specifically supporting it it feels kind of weak, but then there's decks with like a little twist, like Joel Rail, who is a two mana legend that when you draw your second card in a turn, you make a two two cat. So every turn you activate staff, make a draw a card, which makes a cat, which charges the staff. So there's like little engines like that that have popped up that are more cute than good, but they do exist. I've seen it replacing the Baleful Strix slot in Cephalid Breakfast as a just generic thing that draws a card and blocks in your deck while you're trying to set up a combo, which is pretty cool. That works with Urza Saga. Monastery Mentor has been the one that I have been most impressed with just as good cards that you can play that happen to make a token that can draw you a card later. Yep, Mentor overlays with it. I found that I tried a standstill deck with Saf of the Storyteller in it, and my finding in that was that Staff of the Storyteller is a standstill. It's not a Shark Typhoon. If you're talking about what the role of a card is in the deck, like Shark Typhoon is the thing that pays you out for having your engine in play, and standstill is the engine. And Staff of the Storyteller is a standstill. It's not a Shark Typhoon because it doesn't function under standstill because you have to cast the staff. And I found that everything that works under standstill also charges Staff of the Storyteller because you're doing Shark Typhoon, you're doing Timeless Dragon, you're doing Currency, converter you might have urza saga in your deck all of these charge staff and i think that this card is actually going to kill standstill like the last remnant of people like myself still trying to make standstill work because it is a less volatile thing that triggers off all the same engines that your deck is already playing and gives you cards over time and there's never a board where you draw staff of the storyteller and you're like well if i cast this i lose which is occasionally the case with standstill so i think standstill even though it's not a tier one archetype is one of the ones most affected by the existence of this card i don't believe you mentioned it or maybe you did but i didn't hear anything about living weapon with this because we talked about how it replaced uh stormforge mystic and breakfast but in breakfast i've seen a bunch of people putting cauldron into play and then getting that draw trigger definitely had that coming talking about as a draw engine and stone blade it's just another two mana thing you can do for a white and a colorless and be proactive but then the stoneforge mystic living weapon if you're ever in that hyper end game scenario where you're like picking up and redeploying a batter skull every time they remove it that batter skull comes with a card draw now off of staff phil is laughing in his seat he knows that life as a that the texas gamer that charging the staff is non-zero it's actually very cool I, I did a bit of that on the channel as well. Brian, this is maybe a question directed at you. In my games against these staff decks, I'm finding that they either win or lose the game with a bunch of counters on these things. Either they're dead before they have time to invest the white mana into uh, like drawing the cards off of staff because they have to be using the white mana to like 
prismatic ending or swords to plowshares early threats, or they have gotten to the end game and there's like a staff with five counters on it, a staff with four counters on it, a staff with three counters on it, and like they have all the cards they could ever possibly want and mana is kind of the bottleneck. What What's your experience with like number of counters on these things as like games go on? Yeah, I found a similar thing. A lot of the times white is not the main color especially if you're in an uro adjacent deck uh, white is usually the color you get last you don't want basic planes in your uro deck or you want it in your deck for emergencies but you rarely want to draw it or see it in play which puts some tension on that even the blue white azorius core or like blue white splash red out of the sideboard that we see a lot those decks play like five islands two planes a lot of the time so white is your smaller color but i have seen decks constructed more recently respecting that with like four planes three islands kind of rebalancing based on what you're actually spending mana on i have found a lot of fun tension where you play the first staff of the storyteller you cash in your counter and then you're like oh man my next token is going to be so good and then sometimes you get there sometimes you don't and i have definitely found that tap to activate is a serious limiting factor which is literally the game design purpose of tapping your card so good job Richard Garfield on that one. A lot of the time you only you can only activate it once. That's how the card works, once per turn cycle. So if you are making tokens every turn, but you can only activate it once per turn. If your opponent in that situation that you just described where you have stabs on like five, four, and three, and your opponent's dying to your five tokens, like sure, the game's over. Uh, but the ones you get run over, Staff of the Storyteller, not having death touch the way Baleful Strix or Ice Fang Koala would, that first creature like some random 3-3 or whatever, or Thalia 2-1 first strike just cracks in, eats your token for free. Now you don't have a blocker anymore. And then if you're just taking steady damage, it is hard to play from behind with these cards. You need to be at parity or ahead to really cash them out. One quick thing that I would like to address here is every card advantage engine that we've discussed previously that is along the same mana value. So Predict, Chart of Course, Reckless Impulse, Moment of Truth, LOL, Standstill. These are cards that are not hit by Prismatic Ending. Yes, you could theoretically ending an Uro or an Ice Fang, but they've already drawn the card. Minsk and Boo has already done something. Staff makes a 1-1. There will be games like Phil mentioned where you're, you know, building up charge counters or whatever. Brian, has it been able to be targeted by prismatic ending mattered at all in your experience or is it just like you use it use the counter and then people don't want to spend their endings how how does it play out in actual games yeah i have been on both sides of that where against white decks i don't really run it out on turn two like in white mirrors i'm kind of waiting till turn three where i could at least cash out if they have the ending as the game goes long uh, it is tough watching your staff of the storyteller with four counters on it get prismatic ending because those are like maybe you get one on the way out but those are three more cards you're never really going to get I mean, you never really had but also it feels bad that they're gone more so than prismatic ending though because all the planeswalkers the uro that you mentioned they'll have a target eventually is main deck bs that you used to not care about like zenith for collector roof just shutting down your draw engine is something we've never really had to care about before and people boarding and meltdown versus your azorius control deck is something we haven't had to care about before and now we do. So that's that's worth noting. Uh, I've seen an energy flux in play against my blue white control deck. It's it's weird out there. People are doing a lot of stuff to beat up your artifacts. And that is part of my theory about Staff of the Storyteller, where more than any other historical comparable, it's it's a lot like accumulated knowledge in that the first one is not that good. And the second one is like, okay, 
and the third one is a huge problem for your opponent, but they are disruptable by things that are not that unusual. Like accumulated knowledge, graveyard hate blows you out, uh, endurance, just when endurance was printed was the full end stop end of accumulated knowledge even in ak's time when it was good scavenging ooze was index uh, that's attackable under normal circumstances staff of the storyteller being in play for things like charismatic ending or a braid is kind of exposes you to the same sort of problem if my engine gets firing you're in trouble but my engine is exploitable and it takes some time to get going i'm really struggling with this issue as the person who is trying to sideboard against these staff decks so like for example, do I want to play Collector Oof that fights exa- against exactly four cards in my opponent's deck list when Collector Oof is so embarrassing against Uro, Snapcaster Mage, Minsk and Boo? Similarly, do I want to play Force of Vigor, or t- probably two of them that I have in my sideboard, like, do I want to board those in versus the control deck when they're dead so frequently and my opponent will probably get to cash in at least one card worth of value anyway? I'm I'm really struggling conceptually with how or if I am supposed to fight over this card. I think that's about how long of a game you think you're going to play. Like the thing you said of just taking them to pound town when they have two or three counters on their staff and they die, I would not bother interacting with it in a deck that can do that. But in a deck like uh, Maverick, like Maverick's a control deck, ultimately, uh, it kind of a mid-range spectrum of control, but it's not playing a short game. It's closer to death and taxes than it is deny adepts. Like you have to plan for a situation where it's not really like, can I answer or do I want to answer this staff? It's only four cards, but it's not really only four cards because it turns every token generator in their deck into a cantrip. So fighting over the staff, you're also fighting over the Timeless Dragon and the Urza Saga and the the Living Weapon Trigger uh, and the Joel Rail. Like whatever it is they're doing with this thing, you're denying a lot more cards than just what staff does. All right. Do we have any other staff related thoughts? I have one that is adjacent and it's also on our list to talk about and we're going to save the best for last uh fairy mastermind was going to come up next but i'm going to talk about fable of the mirror breaker for a minute and this card let me tell you uh it's been defining standard pioneer and modern since it's printing and it's been showing up in legacy appropriate archetypes like painter it's a backbone of painter but anzi with his yorion hot band deck just put three of these into the band shell uh like if you haven't seen anzi's Yorian hot band deck. It's basically just my hot band deck with 20 more cards in it. We have all the same cards. We haven't done anything conceptually different other than he shoved 20 more cards into it. There are no cuts from the stock list. The only additions. And he added four staff of the to- storyteller and three Fable the Mirror Breaker. And Fable in a blue shell. I might be hooked. This this was a lot of fun to play. Fable makes tokens. Uh, both the Goblin Shaman that it makes on arrival and every time Goblin attacks makes a treasure. Staff, does staff specify creature token? I think it does. And I think this is not relevant to our conversation. Some Somebody look that up and let me know. But you at least get the Goblin Shaman token, which adds a redraw to your Fable. The Fable's already going to select more cards. And if you discard something like Life from the Loam or Uro or lands you've already returned once with a Life from the Loam that were plus three cards, holy guacamole. We did just get confirmation that Staff is creature token and the treasures don't count. Fable, just on its own, is pretty sick. And in combination with the other things going on in a highly synergistic shell, I am deeply impressed by. Once you can start copying some of the things in your blue deck, you can do some kind of weird 
things like extra Uro life gain, extra endurance, nuclear graveyard again, kind of lock down that zone. The card is very, very obviously good. And there's a lot of things that once you see it in action, just interacting with things that you wouldn't have thought of. Like if you've ever been on the wrong side of like that thing, plus Snapcaster Mage, plus a stacked graveyard, it, it can be gross. Real quick before we get angry comments, the reflection of Kiki Jiki can only copy non-legendary, so you can't spam Uros to gain extra life. I've played Fable in a lot of decks over Modern and Pioneer, and I basically read this card as three mana, draw a removal spell out of your opponent's hand, loot two, and then draw another removal spell out of your opponent's hand. Uh, so it's kind of like a mind route with selection attached to it. Anytime that my goblin actually stays in play to attack and generate a token, I'm like, oh my god, the possibilities are endless. And if I ever untap with Reflection of Kiki Jiki, I don't even know what to do with myself. That's happened so few times that they're so incentivized to kill it. Yeah, it's bonkers. It unlocks all sorts of crazy stuff. Let's move on to what is probably going to be our final card of the day. And that is Fairy Mastermind. I think this one is new enough that I'm going to go ahead and read this. Yes. This is one in a blue for a 2-1 Fairy Rogue with both Flash and Flying. Whenever an opponent draws their second card each turn, you draw a card. And for three colorless and a blue, each player draws a card. Starting at the surface level here, that means for four mana, you draw a card, your opponent draws a card, you draw a second card. Wow, Spectral Sailor power creep. Yeah, they, they did creep the crap out of Spectral Sailor, but I would even say that activating that ability is not even really the surface that's like highly relevant flavor text the surface of this card is in response to your ponder flash this in i have a 2-1 and i draw a card because you just pondered or brainstorm even if it's on your own turn brainstorm's going to draw three cards uh, right away and meet the criteria this is ambush your cantrip plus one card now deal with my 2-1 and you know six turns from now we could start talking about activating this thing if we want to but just jump in eat the cantrip and off we go that is crazy exciting gameplay while we're talking about fairy mastermind and i know we've already talked about narsa one incidental thing that i've noticed in my testing recently is if you're someone who plays a lot of bobble effects either mishras or urzas you can use them in ways that get around fairy mastermind and narsa both of which are making huge swings in the metagame right now so i think the value of things like bobbles sort of pseudo ignoring these cards actually is pretty relevant yeah the Mastermind doesn't require exactly the same dancing as a Narset does because your draw doesn't get just deleted, uh, but your opponent gets a card too. This is kind of like, the effect it has on this is something that I talk about a lot in my EDH deck building, which might not be relevant to a lot of our listeners here, but there's a lot of legacy cards in those decks, and I put cards that constrict my opponent's options into my EDH decks. Like I'm talking about Dothy Voidwalker and Dranath Magistrate and Aven Mind Sensor. That's the kind of thing that I want. I want to squeeze three players rather than draw one card myself. So when someone is like, what about Archivist of Ogma in this deck? That helps me, but it doesn't stop these other three enemies. So I'm going to favor a card that actually stuffs them more than something that just feeds me legacy is a little different because you only have to go 1v1 versus a player and fairy mastermind does not eat the draw the way that hall breacher does it just like you're not squeezing your opponent out of the game it just becomes a lopsided arms race on who can do more before the game ends which i think is a important play pattern if my opponent's hall breacher deck has up three mana and i have a read that they have hall breacher 
I might just not cast the brainstorm in my hand, even if I'm not doing anything. But you can brainstorm into open meta with Fairy Mastermind, and it's just like, ah, eh, fine, take your card. I'll continue playing the game. It's a different kind of texture than the full blowout. It really makes a lot of the other card advantage options worse. Like Uro was something we were singing the praises of very early on in this episode. And when you have a hand with an Uro and your opponent has the fairy mastermind on board, it it feels pretty bad to play your Uro. You're still probably going to begrudgingly do it. You might really think like, can I wait a turn or two to draw a an answer to this thing rather than giving my opponent the immediate value. And a lot of your decisions really, really look at how many cards are in both of your hands in a way that you might not with a lot of other typical card advantage situations. Right. In that way, Fairy Mastermind plays a lot like Shouldered the Apocalypse, which is if you're not holding the answer on arrival, it's going to hurt a lot to try to dig for it. And Obviously, it's a different thing. It incentivizes a different thing. Punishment when you try to dig for the out if you're not already holding it is a huge deal. And just like Shouldred, Fairy Mastermind appears in matchups or in decks where you would generally not want a ton of creature removal in, especially post-board. Like if we're in a world where we're curving Fairy Mastermind into Narset, Snapcaster Mage, Wandering Emperor, those ask for different answers than 2-1 Flying does. These are matchups where I would normally go down to one or zero plows in a mat in a blue-white control mirror, and now you just might need to leave all of them in, and then where are you going to find room for all these pyroblasts that are in your sideboard? It's, it's a tough squeeze for exactly these sort of matchups. I think another thing that I really like about this card is the body is just so reasonable. Like, this is a 2-1 flash flyer. This is your end-of-turn play that you can start pressuring, you know, a deck like Reanimator or something like that that you might normally have to hold up a bunch of mana for. In a matchup like, say, Death and Taxes or something like that, a 2-1 flash creature will trade with a lot of relevant bodies. Like, this is an acceptable clock. This is a body that can trade when you need it to be a removal spell. This card does a lot. I'm so impressed by it, just as a whole. I've boarded in Containment Priest against decks like Storm that don't even have creatures just because it has two power and flash, and I can hold up a counter spell or drop a threat if they don't make me counter it. And this one just gives you that on a card you want to play anyway. Brian, does playing Fairy Mastermind come at any sort of cost? Like, are you no longer playing threats that you used to because you're now playing Fairy Mastermind? Or does Fairy Mastermind just come at the cost of the slot that Expressive Iteration was in? Like, are you still playing things like Snapcaster Mage or Monastery Mentor? Or does it sort of eat that away and then Fairy Mastermind, uh, like you use more cantrips or something else in the Expressive Iteration slots? Like, what is your thought process here? You probably don't put Mastermind in one of those really classic clunky Azorius core decks that has like two or three Supreme Verdicts across the 75 or four Terminus across the 75. I think they might step on each other a little bit. Like you're incentivized to go one for one because you have this two for one machine low on the curve rather than trying to spike a giant sweeper at some point. That I think that texture changes a little. But rather than replace the three drops, Fairy Mastermind costing two is something that these blue-white core decks have been begging for for years, basically since War of the Spark came out. And we get Narset, Teferi, Monastery Mentor, Snapcaster plus a one drop. 
these are all three mana plays. It's a running joke in the community that Jeskai Control is just like the three drop theme deck. They don't do anything before turn three. That's a critique of these decks and has been for years and a reasonable one as well. And this is just a very real thing to do on two that will continue to impact the game on turn six and turn 10. And this is just what the doctor ordered for exactly that style of deck. And we don't know what else it's going to spawn, but the existing shell that it just drops right in is Jeskai Control. And Matthew Vuk, Ozymandias, figured that out and won the Legacy Challenge with it. He just, you know, pops a, a playset of these into traditional looking Jeskai Control and off we went. That's a good recipe and it's a clean recipe for success. Also, pressures Narset, pressures Teferi, pressures Comet, you know like other sources of card advantage that we were talking about, not just physically the ones that draw cards either. Another thing I want to point out about Fairy Mastermind is Fairy Mastermind in multiples scales favorably because if you have two Fairy Masterminds and you activate one of them to let each player draw a card, each of those fairies now sees your opponent draw their second card. And now rather than the one for two pump that activating one Fairy Mastermind gets, we get one for three. Just by having the second one around, you don't need to do anything with it. It's not like, hey, one draw a card on some other cards that exist. Uh, it's just like free gratis. If you have one, you get the other. And the damage stack up real quick dying in two point chunks dying in four point chunks outdrawing you three to one you can't cast cantrips or eye divination for free it gets out of control quickly brian you mentioned that these control decks haven't had this two drop that we've been looking for and now with march on the machine we actually have two of them between fairy mastermind and staff of the storyteller how do you know which two drop your deck wants does it want both does it want one or the other how do you decide on this I would be surprised if Staff and Mastermind end up in the same decks together. They do seem like they pull you in different directions. But I think the question is, do you like sweepers or not? I, I think that's one of the big ones because you don't blocking with your 1-1 one, one spirit token, drawing a card and then sweeping the board doesn't feel bad. But Fairy Mastermind, if that goes away in your sweeper, it does feel kind of bad. I think that Fairy Mastermind, I mean, also just what the rest of your deck does, how many instants are in your deck matters a lot. A deck like Bant that is going to be casting Uro, Minskin, Boo, Narset, you don't mind tapping out for something like Staff so much. A deck like Jeskai that wants to hold up Pyroblast, Swords to Plowshares, Mystical Dispute, Force Negation etc. And then slide in a 2-1 if you don't pressure. That's probably where it's going to be. Decks with a lot of instants who can leverage not tapping out on their own turn better. All right. Do we have any final thoughts here about card advantage in this sort of new world and the draw of blue? Uh, I just want to shout out uh, Yuta Takahashi for his world's win. He is an eternal gamer himself. He frequently bling posts on Twitter with his black border power and his eternal foils. And he is one of us. And he is also the Magic World Champion. And this is a gift from him to himself and also to us by proxy. This was not just an accident. He, he knew what his audience was with this card. So shout out to Yuta. Thank you. And one more shout out. Happy birthday to our editor, Phil Blackman at force of phil on twitter phil you do a great job editing this podcast and we appreciate you hope you have a great birthday 